weather, but my sinuses do not. And so bear with me this morning as I might sound a little bit nasal. But it sounds like a lot of you guys are having the same problem. Like the, the time changes, so that's awesome. And then the weather gets nicer, so that's awesome, except I don't know about you guys, but Saturdays, I'm rough on myself. Um, Sunday comes around, and I'm like, wow, what did I do to myself yesterday? And I'm not even partying like I used to 10, 12 years ago. So, I mean, you know, I'm punishing myself with the outdoors, I guess. I don't know. So we began the book of 1 Timothy uh, two weeks ago. And uh, as we began it, I, I kind of, I didn't avoid, but I kind of missed some pieces that are kind of important. Uh, beginnings are important, right? Um, it's kind of where we start from. And if we can always look back to the beginning. And so I want to talk about Timothy for just a moment, because in Acts chapter 16, Timothy, this young disciple of Paul that we're reading about, Paul's writing a letter to him. But before Paul wrote this letter, Paul had to meet him. Paul had to invest in him. And when he did this, it was in the book of Acts chapter 16. And I promise I marked the page, but I think I lost it. There it is. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. It says, speaking of Paul, he came to a place called Derby and Lystra. And, he, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. So you see that contrast. His, his mother was a Jewish woman. She was a Jewess, and uh, she was a believer in Jesus. Um, but it says there, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So he was a man who had a mom who was a Jewish woman, he had a dad who was a Greek man, um, and many times when they speak of that, it's kind of the same word we use to get the word Gentile. He was a non-believing individual. Uh, but it says there, of him, his testimony, Timothy's testimony, it says in verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And so he was well spoken of by believers as a faithful individual. He had a good testimony among those who were around him the most. And if you want to know how somebody actually is in real life, not just what you think that they are, you can talk to the people that are around him the most. Uh, we know that about our families. I think a lot of the time we get the wrong view about our families. We're like, they are the worst. Or sometimes we kind of sugarcoat it. And we're like, they're the best. But my point is we know based on our extra amount of time with them, way more about them than we do about people that are in other families. So in our day and age, sometimes we see things on Facebook or we interact with people in short spells and they say, how's the family doing? Of course, it's always great because nobody ever goes, it's rotten right now. It's not good at all. We don't ever tell people that because we, we don't want it to be that way. And so we kind of speak as if everything's fine. Uh, it never is. But my point is the people that knew Timothy the best spoke well of him to Paul. And so... Um, Verse 3 says, Paul wanted to have him go on with him. So Paul wanted to invest specifically in Timothy. So him being able to write this letter to Timothy later, Timothy's now a pastor at Ephesus, it didn't start with him just saying, hey, I've got some work for you to do, will you go do it? It took a lot of investment. And any of you that have ever tried to at your workplace, 
or in your families, try to teach someone to do something they don't already know how to do. It takes time and investment, and for a time, you have to do double the work. Uh, we have people at work where we're always trying to train them so we have more capacity to regrind tools. But in order to do that, we have to take some resources away from the skilled labor that could be producing things in order to train them. So not only are they not getting work done, but they're also training someone else to do it, probably not right the first time. And so they're doubling their efforts and producing less product out the door. It takes resources, it takes time, it takes investment. But the investment up front is in hopes that there will be a dividend in the long run. And so um, anytime you want to train somebody to do something, recognize well, you can't just microwave it. You've got to bake it. You've got to slow cook it. You've got to put it in one of those, you know, those green egg smokers. You know, if you want good meat, you don't just microwave it. I mean, it will do in a pinch. And no doubt many of us probably survive on a lot of microwave meals. And I love microwave meals because that means it's leftovers. But the next day, you know, the, the long term, you, you want to produce meals that are succulent. And, you know, anybody cooks a birthday meal for somebody, more than likely, unless they just got that kind of taste, they're not using the microwave. They're doing something special. They're getting out the crock pot. They're, they're slow cooking something. And so Paul didn't microwave Timothy. <laughs> he slow cooked him. You know, over time, he invested in him. He spent time with him doing what he was already doing. He wanted to take Timothy with him. And so Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And then it gets weird, seemingly. It says, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. <laughs> now, I've taught this passage before, and I, kinda, I taught it to youth. I just skipped over it. I was like, and that's what happened, so let's go on. But the point is, not so much about the physical procedure or that anybody would know it, because it's not like something everybody knows about, necessarily, unless you're talking about it, which I don't know who would do that. But in their culture, they would. A Jewish person would say, I'm of the circumcision. And to us, that's creepy, but to them, it was their cultural identity. Uh, but before that, when it was Abraham, it wasn't a cultural identity. It wasn't like, hey, I'm a Christian, and I'm an American. It was, hey, my life is set apart for the, for the Lord. It was an outward sign of an inward change that no one else would see, but you would know about. That you are circumcised, and Paul would go on later to say, circumcision, if it's only a physical circumcision in your flesh, is of no use unless it's a circumcision of the heart. A heart that has been penetrated by the gospel and affects more than just your words, more than just your testimony, but it affects how you live. And if your life is truly set apart for the Lord, whether you're circumcised or not, if God has circumcised or made your heart sensitive to him, then you are set apart for his use. And so this passage is, you know, just talking about the first thing that happened, that Paul um, wanted to take him with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So he wanted to point out the fact that this this young man, Timothy, that was going to go with him was a believer, but that he was willing to do and go the extra mile to be set apart for God's use. To the Jews, if you're not a circumcised man, you come and share the testimony about Jesus, it just basically is like, eh, you didn't really remember, you didn't believe in the old covenant, so why should I listen to you? It was an extra mile. He didn't have to do it. Paul would tell Titus, you don't have to be circumcised. 
But to Timothy, who was going to minister to a set group of people, he wanted him to take that extra step so that they would be more likely to listen to him. And so verse 4 says, And they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders of Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Bringing Timothy, as it were, onto staff, if you will, in his missionary journey actually multiplied the amount of work they were able to accomplish. And so that's the beginnings. That's how Paul met Timothy. They weren't family. They were just coincident. You know, in their minds, they were, might have been coincidence where they met. You know, it was co- coincidental. But Paul knows in God's economy, wherever God sends you, when you meet people and there's this um, unction to invest in that person, you don't know who it will be. It may not be somebody you're related to. It might be somebody that you work with. It might be somebody you meet on Crane Pond Road on the way to you know, find a, a Jeep hardtop, right, Dave? It could be somebody that you just happen to meet as you're doing what you're already doing. Many of us are not stopping each and every day and going on a missionary journey. Oh, it's noon, time for my mission, you know. Uh, we're, we're doing our jobs, we're providing for our families, and that is a godly thing to do. So where God sends you, he's already preparing people for you to meet. Life is about relationship. God created us for relationship with him, and he's created us and sent us into this world that is very hard and busy for relationship. And so Paul, knowing this, finds this young man, invests in him, and eventually, because of his investment, he's not necessarily poured into by Timothy, but the gospel is going forth through Timothy to the glory of God and for reward in heaven. So there's this planting of a church in Ephesus. There needs to be a pastor. Hey, Paul's already been investing in this guy. Hey, why don't you go to Ephesus and see if God will use you there? And so Timothy goes there. So... All that said, that's kind of the background. But what I want to talk to you about before we go to the next slide is Paul's pattern was that he had become all things to all men so that some might listen and be saved. So when Paul became a disciple of Jesus, he was on the road to Damascus. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. And he was like this well-known religious Jewish rabbi. But in order to follow Jesus, he had to lay aside that identity and become a Christ follower, which in Jewish society was blasphemy. So there was a cost involved for Paul to follow Jesus. Another example, we just read about it this week in our uh, Bible study together. In 1 Kings chapter 19, there was a young man by the name of Elisha, and there was a man by the name of Elijah. So if you're reading the Old Testament and you get confused, you're like, wow, these two guys' names are like really close to the same. But what happened is, many of you might remember, remember there was a time in the northern tribe, or excuse me, the northern kingdom of Israel when it was split, where they were worshiping Baal, which was not a real god, it was a false god. And so there was 450 prophets of Baal, and there was one prophet of God, Elijah. And so Elijah being emboldened by the Lord, talked to the king, and he said, I want you to get all the prophets of Baal together. So they have this powwow on the top of Mount Carmel. And when we go to Israel next year, in 2019, we will actually sit on the top of Mount Carmel and have a Bible study about that passage. But while we're there, while they were there, they they all got together, and, and Elijah really wanted to say, hey, let's figure out who really God is. 
Let's figure out who's worshiping the true God. So he put God to the test in a way, at the Lord's leading, but he said, I want you guys, here's two bulls, here's two ox. Uh, we're going to both sacrifice them. We're going to lay them on an altar. You call on your God, and, we'll, and don't light fire. We're not going to kindle a fire. We're going to have your God kindle the fire. And if he does, then he's God. And then I'm going to sacrifice a bull, and I'm going to put him on my altar, and I'm going to pray to my God, and I'm going to sacrifice him. And whoever consumes the offering receives it, is the idea. He is God. And so Elijah does this, and they start praying to their God. And they actually are crying out. They're yelling from like 8 a.m. to noon. It's this long period of time and nothing. They even start doing what pagans would do. They start cutting themselves to get their God's attention. Maybe if I cut myself, maybe if I do this thing as an act of worship to him, he'll respond. And guess what? Their God never responds. And Elijah starts mouthing. I think he's more Iron County than we realize. You know, Elijah starts going, hey, maybe your God can't hear you. Cry louder. Maybe he's uh, going to the bathroom. Maybe he's taking a little nap. Maybe he's tired. And so um, he never responds. Elijah goes, okay, my turn. And he goes over, he digs a trench around his altar, he builds an altar out of rocks, and he puts the ox up there that he's killed and sacrificed. He, he prepares the sacrifice, and then he does something that you would not do if you're going to start a fire. He says, I want you guys to take these big, huge vessels, I want you to go down all the way down to the creek, I want you to fill them up with water, and dump them on the offering. And they do this multiple times, all the way till the, not only is the offering covered in water, not only is the wood covered in water, not only is the altar, but the trench he dug around it is full of water. Okay, so he stops, and he says, Lord, and he prays this very simple prayer, one of the shortest prayers in all the Bible. And the Lord hears, he responds, he sends fire from heaven, which consumes the entire offering and all of the water around the altar, and then it's over. And all the prophets of Baal go, wow, the Lord, he is God. So there's this testimony that God is who he says he is and that Baal is not God at all. He's a false God. They're worshiping nothing. And so as a result of that, here's what happened. Elijah's been emboldened. You ever done something really bold and then afterwards you're like, I don't know if I should have done that because now the whole northern tribe's mad at me. And, uh, and this is at the time of King Ahab and King Jezebel. There is no more ungodly name that I've ever heard or read about in the, in the Old Testament than Jezebel. She was out for blood. She was going to kill Elijah. And at this time, Elijah had prophesied it's not going to rain until you repent. So he's also responsible for destroying their crops in their mind. So they want to kill him. And so Elijah's been emboldened. He's done this great thing. And now he's like, not so sure. And he starts, and, and it says there that he prays until a rainstorm comes because the rain's coming back because of their repentance. And as he's praying, this cloud kind of comes up out of the sea and starts to build, and he tells the king, hey, you better get off this hill because it's about to get muddy. Here comes the rain. And they'd been in a drought for years. So they start heading down the hill. It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he ran down the hill so fast that he outran the chariot. And then he got down to the bottom. He's completely exhausted and overwhelmed. And then the, the story goes that he ends up in his fear and doubt and worry. This man of God, done this great ex, you know, exploit. Now he's afraid because he's spent, he's worn out, he's drained. And he says, Lord, I, I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm afraid they're going to kill me. 
And so the Lord provides miraculously food for him to eat. And he ends up running and running and running and takes a journey to this place and he hides out. And while he's hiding out, the Lord causes, I think, a tornado and an earthquake. And he doesn't hear the voice of the Lord in any of these things. But then it says, the still small voice of the Lord came and spoke to Elijah. So that's where our passage is today in 1 Kings 19. And here's what the Lord said to him in verse 15. Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So there's going to be a new prophet. Elijah's time is coming to an end. It's time for him to basically come up with his Timothy, the next prophet of the, the nation. And, and so he goes to Elisha, and it says there, um, well, he tells him first in verse 17, it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill the king, and whoever escapes the word of Jehu, Elisha will kill. His prophet's going to be a, a, a prophet who puts people to death. He says, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel all of whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him or bowed allegiance to Baal, this false god. And so what Elijah was scared of is he was scared that he was the only prophet and he was about to be snuffed out and no one would be left as a testimony to the realness of God. And so he tells him, I want you to go and invest in Elisha. And, and in the meantime, also know this, there are 7,000 people in Israel, this remnant of people who have not yet bowed their knee to this false god. So he was giving him good news. You're not the only one, number one. There's confidence in numbers, right? But also I want you to invest in this young man by the name of Elisha. So he departed from there, verse 19, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And this is what Elisha was doing. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him, and he took his mantle, or his garment off, and he passed it on to Elisha and threw it on him. And he left the oxen, excuse me, then Elijah passed by him, threw his mantle on him. You ever heard the phrase, to pass the mantle on to somebody else? A lot of the time, upperclassmen will pass the mantle on to the younger classmen, you know, in sports, like, hey, you're the next lead scorer, I'm going to, you know, and try to duplicate yourself because you're gone. You know, and, and what kind of legacy can you have if you're no longer playing unless you invest in the younger players? And a lot of the time that doesn't happen. And then you have this young team that nobody's invested in the kids. And oftentimes the coaches are like, we gotta, we got to do this, we got to do that. But if the players would reproduce themselves, we wouldn't have a problem, have a practical thing, something to think about, Stephen. You know, and anybody else is playing sports, you want the team to do good past you, it's on you. Multiply yourself. But then he says, um, it says there, he, uh, he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah. And he said, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? In other words, hey, you can go back. You don't have to stay with me. Because basically what he said is, follow me. Like Jesus said to the disciples, hey, I know you're doing this. Why don't you come follow me? I'm going to make you fishers of men. He's saying, I know you're plowing here, but why don't you come follow me and start plowing into the hearts of men and have an effect on them. And Elisha says, well, let me go tell my parents goodbye. 
And Elijah's like, well, you can go stay with your parents for all I care. You can either come with me or not. I'm not going to beg you, but let's go. If you're going to go, now's the time. Now, he's not being disrespectful to parents, but many times, here's what happens. And this happened in the, the disciples, too, that he said, uh, actually, we'll go to there in Luke chapter 9. Hold your finger in, in uh, 1 Kings. Luke chapter 9, in verse 57. Here's what he's talking about the cost of discipleship. Everybody has to leave something in order to follow Jesus. Verse 57, it says, As it happened, they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, consider the fact that I have nowhere to live. So if you're going to follow me, you're okay with that, count the cost but I don't have anywhere to live, so it's not going to be as great as you think it is. But then he says, verse 59, then he said to another, follow me. But this man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, he wasn't saying to him, you can't go to your parents' funeral. In that culture, when someone says, let me bury my father first, doesn't mean they're dead right now. It means, let me wait until my dad's no longer around, and then I'll come follow you, because I'm obligated to my, my parents. If they don't have me, they don't have anything. And he said, look, uh, let the dead bury their own dead. You've got work to do for people to bring them to life. It's not about uh, waiting around. He said, you need to come and invest in the kingdom now if you're going to. Count the cost, but let's go. The time is now. And so Jesus, when he calls people, he bids them to deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow him, even if they've got things that they feel obligated to. Verse 61 says, And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And look at this phrase. I want you to really focus in on verse 62. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Interesting, because Elisha is called to leave the plow, but he's comparing building the kingdom to following behind the plow and running it to break up the ground. And so here's this tie together with Elisha, because he's being called away from the plow, and he's saying, no one who comes to follow me who looks back to the plow is worthy of the kingdom of God. So Elijah is calling Elisha, to say, hey, come follow me, be a prophet to the nation, but don't look back. And so I want you to go back to 1 Kings and look at Elisha's response to this very very challenge. It says there in verse 21, So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, and slaughtered them. And he boiled their flesh, he made an offering is what he's doing, and he used the oxen equipment and gave it to the people, and they ate. So he took these oxen that were his livelihood, he killed them, he burned them on a fire made out of the oxen implements, and he offered them up as an offering, and then he fed everybody that was around. He killed his old old identity as a farmer. He's saying essentially, I'm not going to look back, and I won't be able to go back either. I'm giving it up for the sake of what you want me to do as part of the kingdom, Lord. So he can't just, he's not just saying, I'm no longer going to identify with that. He's saying, 
I'm going to make it so I can't possibly even be tempted to go back. He kills it, but he does it as an offering to the Lord. And, and that's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. And that's what Jesus also said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. We're going to leave 1 Kings, so you don't have to hold your thumb there, but go back to Mark chapter 8. Matthew, Mark. Don't go to Luke. It's too far. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. When he had called, excuse me, when he, when he had called the people to himself, with his disciples also present, he said to them, whoever desires to follow me, or my version says, come after me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So he talks about giving up, uh, laying down one's life for the sake of the gospel, and if you're willing to give it up for whatever God's called you to, maybe he hasn't called you to be a prophet. Maybe he hasn't called you to be on a missionary journey with Paul. Obviously he hasn't. But he's called you to something. He's called everyone in here for something in particular. He's called even other people that you do not know the Lord that are famous. He made them for a specific purpose. I was lamenting this last night. We're talking about people that can sing. How many of you guys have heard Mariah Carey sing? How many of you have heard her go like 18 gajillion octaves above, above human hearing? Like there's this song they play at work and it's once in a while and she just goes for it. She's like four octaves above anything I can even dream of. I almost couldn't hear it. And I was waiting for the glass on the windows to break. So we marvel at that kind of talent. But do you know that God gave her that talent? And do you know that he gave it for her to praise his name? Is she? No. And sadly, many of us, in some areas of our lives, we have God-given gifts that we are not using to serve and to praise his name, to make him famous. God gave us talents, all of us. Whether you think it's a talent or not, it's a talent. Some of it's, it's hospitality. Some of it, compassion like no else some of it the ability to work with our hands and just do cool stuff and bless people some of it have been blessed financially so that we can be a blessing to others that's a gift some of it some of us feel like we got nothing but i promise you god has gifted you in a specific way so with that in mind that brings us to back to timothy and first timothy chapter two in chapter 1 and verse 1 through 11, uh, Paul told Timothy, I want you to make sure that these things are in, in place. Teach sound doctrine. Teach the word of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In verse 12 through 17, he said, proclaim the gospel. Not a gospel of works, but the gospel. The gospel that is meant to save all mankind. Share how God has personally saved you. Share your testimony. That's what Paul did for Timothy. 
Verse 18 through 20, defend the faith. Fight for the things that matter. Show by the way that you live that trusting Jesus with your life is the only way to truly live. But then in chapter 2, he kind of takes a little bit of a turn and he starts to talk about priorities with the church. So in chapter 2, he says, Therefore, I exhort... Uh, the word exhort there means to strongly encourage. Many of you are exhorters in your homes towards your children. You're strongly challenging and encouraging your kids. It's good. He says, I exhort first of all. And I put there in the slides, first of all is the priority level for Timothy. He says, I exhort you, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For all men, yeah, women too, but mankind is the idea. All individual people should be prayed for. Now, how many of us have the ability to affect every person with the gospel in the whole world? Good, no hands. None of us can be everywhere at once, but who can? God. It's the Sunday school answer, but God can. You know, I ask Lucy questions all the time. Who made this or who did this? And she'll say, Jesus, you know, because she's kind of learned that that's the response I'm expecting. But the idea is that God is the only person that can be in all places at all time, the Holy Spirit. And so uh, one of the ways that you and I actually can affect all men who are alive right now is by praying for all men. Now, maybe that's a little overwhelming, but let's talk about the types of prayer he mentions here. Supplications prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So prayer, uh, the word there, or prayers, are an act of worship, not just a list of wants and needs, but a reverent, dignified interaction with our God. That's how we talk to Him. Prayer is also the lifeblood of the church. Do you know that? In Genesis when God created mankind, it says the word rhema, that he breathed into Adam the breath of life. That breath, that rhema, was the life that God placed in him. It was God's breath, if you can imagine that. It's kind of a word picture for us, but he breathed into them actual life. And when he did that, he essentially gave them the ability to live from his source of life. Well, we're alive because of the fall, we are alive to sin and dead to God, and that re relationship was severed. But Jesus came in and he set it up so that we could have a relationship with God again, dying for us for our sins, so that we could be free from the power of sin and from sin itself. But the way that we experience and we're infused with the life of God is actually through breath. And that breath can only be given to us as we interact with God in relationship. Christianity is not about going out and doing good works. There are lots of social programs and clubs that do that. Christianity is about knowing God, loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then Him empowering us and filling us with Himself so that we, through Him, He through us, can love other people and they can come to know Him in a relationship. We introduce people that don't know God to God Himself. So the whole body, the body of Christ, needs to be in communion or communication with God. And as we do that, we being the body, 
are no longer like a teenage boy trying to figure out how to use his body. You know, I, kids, when they become a certain age, it's like all of a sudden their limbs grow exponentially, not in my family, but maybe in yours. And they get taller, they start developing muscles, and of course, you got to have the talk. And, uh, but but they, it, all of a sudden, it's really awkward. They're having acne, but they're getting stronger all of a sudden. They're trying to figure out how to use their strength without hurting themselves. Many of them just go ahead and hurt themselves, don't realize it because they're, you know, but their bone structure is growing and they're trying to become more coordinated. But the biggest hindrance to us using our bodies properly, and we see this in our society even, still with all the medicine, some people are born with birth defects, right? And so their, their brain sometimes can't communicate with the rest of their body and it doesn't function properly. And in those cases, we see them, they got to be in a wheelchair, they got to be carried somewhere. And I, I think a lot of the time, as the body of Christ, we're really like a paraplegic man. Because some of us aren't connected to the head, we don't function as fluidly as we should. The body of Christ is supposed to be this unity this place of unity where we walk in step with Jesus, all of us as individuals, and then as a whole, we walk in step with each other. It's just a natural fruit of all being connected to the same supply source. You know, if all of the circuits in this building are connected to one breaker box, and, they, and one switch gets flipped, all the other lights don't work. But if the main power goes off completely, there's no life in the building, electric speaking. But when that switch is flipped on and everything's connected right, it all works in communion with it, each other, and then the building is a blessing, right? But if some of the power stops working during worship and some of the speakers stop, where all of a sudden you can only hear one piece or another. We start harmonizing and one microphone goes off. It doesn't sound as great. And the body of Christ is meant to be a blessing to God and a blessing to the nations and a blessing to our families and all the people that we know. But if, if just one of us, is out of step with the Lord, it's not all that it can be. Do you remember uh, a few years back, uh, there was a commercial for the army, and there was a song that went along with it. Be all that you can be in the army. You know, that's the idea. They can be all that they can be as long as they follow their commanding officer, and we, as arms and legs and big toes and mouths and ears and eyes, as we're all tied into the head, Jesus himself, through prayer, is the idea. We all are infused with everything that's supposed to flow to every piece of the body, and we work in conjunction with one another instead of against one another. But in this case, he's saying that we need to pray for others. How many of you struggle with, you don't have to raise your hands, I will, struggle with praying for others? I don't struggle with praying for myself, okay? I'm really good at that, actually. I know my needs, I know my failures, I know my wants, I, I know everything about me, the good, bad, and the ugly. So I got no problem praying for me. But in this passage, he says, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So if I'm praying properly, I'm praying for more than just me, because all men is a lot more people than just me. Uh, I'm just actually a small portion of it. And so he says, supplications. That word there is a big word, but it means offering a request for a felt need for someone else. So if someone says to you or expresses grief or problems in an area of their life, pray for them. 
whether they ask you to or not, tell them, I'm going to pray to God for you. And as a result of that, you get to bring God into the conversation. You don't have to do anything, but just pray about that thing. I've got this app, it's called Prayer Mate. And actually, you can make multiple lists, and you don't even have to decide what to pray for. It'll give you five people or groups of things to pray for, and you swipe it. You pray for that person, you pray for that thing, then you swipe it, and there's another one. And it randomizes them enough to where you don't have to feel guilty because, well, I prayed for them, but I didn't pray for them. It's kind of overwhelming sometimes. And so uh, to supplicate, to offer a request for a felt need. Then there's intercessions. These are petitions. We all know what petitions are, right? We live in the day and age where everybody wants one signed about whatever their cause is. But a petition to the Lord is us drawing near to God on behalf of someone else to converse with him about them in confidence. You can confide in the Lord. Now, here's a perversion of that. Many times we want to intercede for someone, and instead of doing it ourselves, we talk to somebody else about it and go, you really need to pray for so-and-so. Stop that. That's gossip. Take that need. If you see it, you know they need intercession, go to God yourself. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've got bold entrance, Hebrews says, because you come in not because of your own worthiness, but because of the blood of Christ on your behalf. We get to walk in any time we want. We get to go into the boardroom, all the meetings going on. You, you don't have to wait and knock and make an appointment. He's ready. Jesus is sitting there praying for us already. We get to go in and say, hey, pray with me on this, Lord. I'm struggling. This person's struggling. And so, intercessions. And then he says, giving of thanks. Giving of thanks. So, I put up there for you a few things. I don't know if I changed my notes. Next slide, please. There. I had it up there for you. So, giving of thanks. Giving of thanks for things. I'm not bad at that. But giving of thanks for people in my life is sometimes more difficult. Even my own children. My own children sometimes are not a blessing. Maybe your guys' children are always a blessing. But mine are not. But I have to give thanks for, to God for placing them in my life and recognize that he's sovereign. He's in control. He put them in your care for a reason. Give thanks for your boss. I struggle with that. Give thanks for your spouse when you don't like them at the moment. Stop and say, Lord, I'm thankful for my husband. I'm thankful for my wife. You love me, so you place them in my life for my good. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know, that will get you through the hard things. Give thanks. Lord, these people are in my life for a reason. At one point in David's life, King David, as a believer, as a follower of God, he would not put his hand to the harm of King Saul. King Saul, when David would come, King Saul had some issues. He was kind of psycho. And at the end of his reign, God took the Holy Spirit from him. And he was tormented by a messenger of Satan. And when he was tormented, we'll get into that another time. When he was tormented, when he was overwhelmed, when he was in his prideful moments, David would be called in to play the guitar and sing a pretty song to cool him off. Except sometimes when you're that guy in someone's life, Saul would have a crazy moment, David would play a song, Saul would remember that David basically, 
was better than him in some way, and Saul would get mad and go, I'm going to kill him. And he would literally take a spear that he was sitting there with in his hand, and he would chuck it at David, and he would pin it to the stone wall. He threw it so hard. And so David had to pray for his master because his master was trying to kill him. You know, And we sometimes feel like our bosses or people in our lives are trying to kill us by the way they interact with us. Can I submit to you that sometimes our ability to have victory over that is to give thanks for them, to pray for them, to supplicate, that God would help them to see things. And so uh, these are ways that we can pray for all men. And one that isn't here is inquiring of the Lord or seeking his will in a situation, uh, pretty much just surrendering others to his care and guidance is what this passage is about. It's about praying for others, not for ourselves. So he says that's the first thing that should be taking place. So he says all men. And then he goes on to say, for instance, kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to be saved. God so loved the entire world that he gave his own begot, only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him, whosoever will believe in him, might be saved. We need to pray for everyone in our lives because God wants to save them. And it is hard to pray for and not be a blessing to people. If you pray for people that are in your life regularly, you won't be able to help but be nice to them and treat them the way that God cares about them. If you don't pray for them, you might be willing to throw a spear at them. That's just reality. But if you pray for them and lift them up to the Lord, give thanks for them, ask God to help them, intercede for them when you know they're going to get ready to make a bad decision, God is able to stop those things. God is able to help them see things clearly. And if we will do that, God will change us more than he'll change them. He'll change the way that we interact with them. And as a result, they will see Jesus in us. And that's the whole goal. So he says, because this is the goal. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So we're going to stop there. So maybe praying for all men is a little overwhelming to you. You're like, I ain't, ain't nobody got time for that. No problem. I mean, the Bible still says you should, so I'm just going to leave that there. But where can we start? You know, you ever have a project and it's so big, you're like, I don't even know where to start. There's just, I was reorganizing uh, my garage yesterday, and before it got better, it got way worse. <laughs> Throwing things away and finding things that I didn't know we still had and I'd been looking for. And, and as I'm going through all of this, I'm overwhelmed. So I started moving one piece at a time. So maybe you're overwhelmed and you're like, I, I'd, li I'd like to pray for people, but I don't know how to pray for all people. Start with the people you live with. Are you praying for your spouse? Are you praying for your children? Are you praying for your grandchildren? Start there and the list goes on because he's talking about praying for kings and all who are in authority. But you can start in your home. Many of us could use a good dose of prayer in our homes. I know I interact with my children better when I'm praying for them specific ways. Um, I also know that um, he's called for us to pray for kings and those who are in authority. 
He doesn't put a stipulation on whether you agree with them or not. He doesn't. He says, pray for all those who are in authority. For what reason? He says, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Pray for the leaders of this country. Pray for the leaders of this state, our county, our local government, so that we will be in a a situation where we can live a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence or dignity. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of the God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. We're praying that the current circumstances would be that we would be free to be able to share the gospel. And if we're not free, that we'd share the gospel anyway, that we would share the love of Christ. And so, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the next slide since we're at at the end of our time. God sends messengers with his message. Prayer, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving. That's where it starts. If you don't know why you're not effective where God has you right now for the Lord, it's because you're not praying for the people in your life. Um, And I already talked about praying for all men and starting at home. Have you ever stopped and just thanked the Lord for people that you don't like? Lord, you've got them in my life for a reason, and I thank you for them even though I don't get it. And then he says, pray for all men. So your home, church, your work, the government, the boss, the owner of your company. And then uh, pray for those that you go to church with. Make sure you do that. I'm not trying to add to a list. I'm just trying to add to God's program. Consider this. I put this name, this word at the end. There is no one in heaven or on their way there who was not first prayed for until they came to the knowledge of the truth. Prayer gets people to heaven. More than words. More than words. So, last slide. God gave Jesus, so we give him ourselves. So as we lead into communion, I want to talk about this real quick. Communion is us interacting with God. Remembering that he gave and asking the Lord, since you gave, what do you want me to do? So I talked about Elisha. He gave up his identity as a farmer to become a prophet for God. Talked about Paul. He gave up his identity as a Pharisee and a law-keeping Jewish man to become all things to all men so that some might be saved, to be sent as an apostle and a preacher of the gospel. (laughs) Timothy, he gave up his identity as a Jewish Greek in order to go and preach the gospel with Paul and eventually become a pastor at Ephesus. But all of these men did this because first Jesus gave. Um, Consider what it says there in verse 6. It says um, in verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. There's only one thing that stands between us and judgment, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, a physical human being, but God himself who gave himself a ransom for all. Jesus loved, so he gave. All because Jesus set aside his right as the supreme ruler of all creation, and he identified with us to sacrifice his life on a tree. Deuteronomy chapter 21 or 22 says, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Jesus 
took on the curse. He became a curse, took on sin, bore the wrath for the sin that he never committed so that we could be set free from sin and the power of sin and be brought back into relationship with him and then spend eternity with him in his presence, but starting now, not later. So as a disciple of Jesus, it will cost you your identity, but it will gain you an inheritance that cannot be taken away, but it also can't be purchased with gold or silver. So let me ask you this question as we lead into communion. Are you truly a disciple who has first denied himself, taken up his or her cross, and following Jesus? Jesus said, if any man would follow me, a disciple, a Christian, is someone who says, I am following Jesus, must first deny himself. That was Jesus that said it, so I'm going to give it some authority. He said, must first deny yourself, say no to self, take up your cross and follow him. And I would just ask this question this morning, for anyone who may not know him, are you willing to deny yourself, forsaking your, your own desires to follow Jesus? And if you are, don't leave today without talking to somebody and praying with them about that. But number two, um, as a disciple, if you are someone who has already received salvation, are you doing this? Do you ever tell yourself no? Like we always laugh at people that never tell your, their kids no, right? I mean, I do it, and then I do it. I don't tell my kids no, right? But do you tell yourself no so you can tell the Lord yes about anything? It's a good exercise. Jesus told himself no so that he could come here. He left his throne to die for us. And now that love that he's shown us should compel us to go and deny ourselves sometimes and take up his cross and follow him to wherever he takes us for his purpose, not ours. Sometimes that means for me, I'm on the way home from a long day of work and I'm, he's saying, stop by somebody's house and say hi. Ask how they're doing spiritually. If I ever do that to you, by the way, don't be creeped out. It's just the Lord. You know, I want to be a blessing. You know, it's not to condemn you. It's, it's to come and encourage you, you know, because that's the time I have to do it is right after work, you know. Um, anyway, so as we get ready to take communion this morning, uh, really, we just, it's just simply remembering the sacrifice that he made on the night of the Passover. That's what we'll celebrate Friday, really. Our Passover lamb was sacrificed, and the, they were eating the body of this Passover lamb on the Passover night, remembering what happened in Egypt when they were slaves and God got them out by the blood of the firstborn that were killed. But in order for the angel of death to pass over and not judge their households, they, they had to kill a lamb and put the blood on the door. And the They were trusting in the blood of the lamb. And we are those who trust in the blood of the lamb. So really what we're doing here, we don't have to kill an animal anymore. The sacrifice has been provided for us. We just get to take of it and remember everything that Jesus did. And because everything that Jesus did, we are free from sin and the power of sin. And so we recognize that. And we celebrate it. And we commemorate it every ta time we take communion. It's a time to just remember the sacrifice he made. Remember all the places he's already taken you through. And then to look forward and say, Lord, what next? until we see him in heaven, face to face. So as we sing this song at your, le at, at your leisure, whenever you feel compelled, you can come up, take 
the bread and the cup.